Hello, this is Aaron Bounds, pastor of the Anchor Church located in Zanesville, Ohio. I want to say thanks for tuning in today. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you to live the life God called you to live. It was 2012. I was in Alexandria, Louisiana. It was a Wednesday morning. Brother Woodward preached the message about King David. He said that God had, through the prophet, told Solomon, he said, I am gonna, I'm gonna bless you for your dad's sake, but your children aren't gonna know me. I'm gonna bless you because of your dad's sacrifice. I can't tell you what stirred in my soul then because I've been blessed with a great dad and great mother who's given everything to be in the kingdom of God. But I said to myself, when my kids are gonna know God, I've gotta pay a price. I've gotta fast and seek the Lord. And it stirred my heart. Ever since he's preached, it has impacted my life. I, I said this a couple weeks ago, but I said here, there hasn't been a ministry that has picked, impacted my life more than Brother Woodward and his teaching and preaching in the last decade of my life. And I'm so thankful for you. So thankful for who you are, your spirit, and moments that you've let me sit and talk to you and ask you hard questions about the day and hour that I live in. This church loves you. I walk in our staff's office sometimes and they're listening to you preach during the week while they're doing the work. And we just love your preaching. We love your teaching. He's made time to be here from Fredericton, Canada. He's a preacher's preacher. He loves the people of God. Would you welcome Brother Woodward as he comes? Amen. We want you to take your time take your liberty. Let's thank God for the man of God that he sent to us. Amen. We love you. Oh, wow. Isn't the Lord good to us? I could not tell you if I took an hour and a half how delighted and honored and privileged I am to be in Zanesville, Ohio tonight. Um, I'm so glad to be spending the next few days with you. I am thrilled beyond measure to be with your pastor and his wonderful wife. Um, I got to celebrate their 20th anniversary with them the other day. Would have been kind of awkward if there hadn't been another thousand people there. I'm so happy for them. I was teaching some uh, new believers this morning and uh, told them, you know, when, when uh, God called Samuel, Samuel ran to Eli, and uh, that's because the voice of God will sound like the voice of your pastor when God speaks to you. Aren't you very grateful to have a man of God that loves you and loves revival, loves the kingdom? And... My friend, Pastor Aaron, is so, always so kind. But the reality is, is I'm beyond blessed and privileged to be with him and with Sister Cindy and their family and all of you. If I lived anywhere near here, this would be my church and that man right there would be my pastor and I wouldn't even blink. I wouldn't waste two seconds praying about it. You're so blessed. I'm gonna get right to the word of God. I'm so grateful for God's presence. We're going to walk our way to a text. So um, I'm not going to have you remain standing for a text, but what I would like you to do, I saw some of you grabbing for your Bible. I'd like you to lift that word high in your hand and let's uh, fill this room one more time with praise and adoration and honor to the Lord and get ready for the Lord to speak to us. Jesus, I pray that you would reveal that word to us tonight. I pray that you would touch us in a way that only you can. I pray you would take our feeble human efforts and God, you would do what only you can do and heal what only you can heal and fix what only you can fix in this place. Let a supernatural move of your spirit invade every life, every home, every marriage, every young person, every senior saint. Jesus, touch us and change us. Let this be not only a few days of revival meetings. Let this be a season of revival for this great church. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Everyone said amen. Now, I'm not going to plague you very much. and I'm not going to nag you, but that, that felt so good. 
but it wasn't Zanesville good. So would you lift up your hands one more time and fill this room with your voice. Your voice is the center of spiritual warfare in your life. When you speak it, death and life are in the power of the tongue. What you say is so important in the presence of God. You can declare something. You can bind something. You can lose something because you are filled with his spirit and you're among people who are allowing God's manifest presence to move. It's important what's going to happen in the house of God tonight. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for this great church. Thank you for this great church. Now that feels like Zanesville. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Keep your Bible handy if you would. We're going to go to a lot of scriptures tonight. Now, I guarantee that in all of your living for God and in all of your history in the apostolic movement and with this great man of God and this wonderful team that serve you and lead this church, I can guarantee nobody in your memory has ever started out a series of revival meetings with a sermon on this topic. I guarantee it. There's no way it's ever happened. Not with an anointed man of God like that. It has never happened. Tonight's the night. Because my subject for your consideration tonight is simply Cinderella. I want to take you to an odd, obscure little book in the Old Testament called Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is undoubtedly one of the most unique books in the entire Bible. It's one of the most disputed books, one of the most difficult books to understand. At one point, it looked like scholars might keep Song of Solomon out of the canon of Holy Scripture. They almost excluded this odd, obscure little book because it has very frank descriptions of intimacy between a man and a woman. But here's what you need to know, that the Jewish people have always revered this little book. In fact, they read it every year during the Feast of Passover. Do you know why? It's because Song of Solomon paints a picture of an engagement and of a wedding and of a marriage. And they understand it like this, that Israel was engaged to Jehovah on the night of the Passover when he delivered them from Egypt. And they understand that Israel was married to Jehovah on Pentecost when he gave them his Ten Commandments and they initiated that covenant with God. But just before Israel entered the Promised Land, Moses spoke these words over the people just in case they'd get feeling too important. He said this, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now here, this is where the, the pin kind of pops your balloon. The Lord didn't set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, because actually you were the fewest of all people. God didn't choose us because we're the biggest organization in town. God didn't choose us because we've got the most in facilities or the most in political connection. God set his love on you, Moses. You were actually the fewest of all people, but he set his love on you. He loved you because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. That's why God brought you out with a mighty hand. That's why he redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Do you know God didn't bring us out of sin because he had to have us in his kingdom or his kingdom would have collapsed? God's kingdom would have been just fine without any of us and without all of us. But aren't you glad that when we weren't the greatest and we weren't the biggest and we weren't the most important, God reached down. For some of us, he reached a long way down. For some of us, he reached into the depths of darkness and addiction and bondage and perversion. But God brought us out and he brought us in. I'm glad he just didn't bring us out of sin and leave us hanging. He brought us into his family. He brought us into truth. He brought us into the apostolic church. He brought us into covenant. <laughs> yeah. So 
Moses said, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. He is the faithful God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You don't have to read in the word of God any further than the book of Exodus chapter 20 where God is giving Israel the Ten Commandments. And you'll read right in the middle of the Ten Commandments, God says that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children down to the third and the fourth generation. And you don't have to read the Bible to understand that. You read a newspaper, you'll understand that. It's so common that the son of an alcoholic grows up to be an alcoholic and the son of an abuser grows up to be an abuser. It's so common. The son of a drug addict grows up to be a drug addict. It's all they've seen. It's all they've known. It's all they've experienced. But the same Bible that says the sins of the fathers flow down a family tree three and four generations deep, the same Bible says that the mercy of the Lord flows down through a family tree to a thousand generations. So if you're an apostolic, you just bless your family in every direction. You might be the only one serving God. You might be the first one to know truth. You might be the only one filled with the Holy Ghost or baptized in Jesus' name. But you just bless your family in every direction for generations. Until Jesus comes again, somebody's going to be blessed because you're serving God tonight. Oh, my goodness. So it's not to get a big puffed up head that we say God chose us. It's out of humility and gratitude and forever thankfulness that God chose us. Now, if you look at that odd little book in your Bible, Song of Solomon, on the surface, it's just a book of romantic poetry. It describes with frankness but yet with purity the intimacy between a man and a woman, between a husband and wife. and it, it shows human sexuality as God meant for it to be described, not pornographically, that's the world, but not prudishly either. It's just something that's beautiful. God refuses to divide any part of us from all of us. You are a whole person. God created you to be a whole person. And when you govern your mind and your body and when you govern your relationships according to the word of God, every part of your life is blessed. This modern idea that we're just biological creatures with urges and we just do whatever feels right at whatever time we want, that is not evidence that we are sophisticated. That is evidence that we are spiritual paupers in the 21st century. But there is a godly, holy, righteous people that has risen up in the last of the last days and they are like the sons of Issachar. They know the times, they know what to do, they know how to serve God and we get to be part of that number serving God in and what the Bible doesn't call the bondage or the burden, but the beauty of holiness. And I'm glad to be part of an apostolic church tonight. Now, many pastors and many churches have used this odd, obscure little book in your Bible for a Bible study on courtship or a Bible study on marriage or sometimes even for a premarital counseling course. And that's all wonderful. That's very practical and beautiful. But there's a far deeper meaning in this different little book in your Bible, buried in the middle of the Old Testament. Until you look past the surface, you won't see this deep, beautiful message. Yes, it's a depiction of the love that existed between Jehovah and Israel, but in the New Testament, we understand it even deeper. It is a beautiful portrait of the love relationship that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Now, there's all kinds of little uh, opinions and whatever, and, and people have different ideas about how this look, book is, is laid out. Uh, but, but I brought you something in uh, the first night of this revival that will really help you. Uh, I brought you a map that uh, I put together that will help you explain Song of Solomon. And if anybody ever asks you, you'll have this outline in your brain. So they've got a picture back there, and they're going to show you. Uh, I, I hope that's helpful to you. And I know that will bless your heart and bless your life and bless your Bible study because that's how it's laid out. It's very clear, isn't it? You're welcome. God bless you, Zanesville. You see, because this book is ancient Eastern poetry, it doesn't follow a clear linear progression. It's, it's all over the place. Um, it doesn't 
write or read like our modern Western writing and reading goes. So it would be quite a task to come up with a map of, of a book. Um, that's as good as I could do. And, and here's the problem. The song, this poem, it flows back and forth and back and forth. It switches seamlessly from scene to scene and from time period to time period. It jumps into the future and then it goes back in memory to the past. And there's not much of a definite storyline. And, and it circles back on itself a couple of times through repetition. Key moments, key phrases are repeated over and over again. And, and, and that's how it develops its themes. And, and, and the, there's a couple of dreams in here that the bride has and she fears that he's left her and, and so you got everything happening all at once. It's, it's really quite amazing. And then there's another little problem in understanding this book is that the, the metaphors and the images that the bride and bridegroom use to complement each other, they don't translate very good uh, to modern American English. He says in chapter 1 and verse 9, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now I can guarantee you that when Pastor and Sister Bounds were celebrating their 20th anniversary last week, he did not look at her and say, darling, you look like a horse. I guarantee he did not say that to her. Guarantee. Because it doesn't translate well. But see, here's the thing. In the 21st century, we've forgotten just how beautiful and graceful horses can be when they're compared to many other animals. But it's not just that. We're unaware of how valuable horses were in the ancient world. But it's not just that. These horses were pulling Pharaoh's chariots, so they're elegantly, expensively adorned. And, and, and yet it's not just that, because the Hebrew term here is feminine. So it's all of those things, but it's also this. This is a mare harnessed among the stallions, which would be the ultimate distraction to them. So we see that and we think, that's weird. But what he just said to her is, I can't keep my eyes off you. So it's actually very high praise, but our modern brain just doesn't compute. And it happens a lot through this song. It happens a lot through this little book, and that's why it seems very strange to us, and it can be difficult to understand. He looks at her at one point, and he says, you have dove's eyes. Well, that's not bad. But when he says, your hair is like a flock of goats, that's just a little beyond for us. And when he says, um, your teeth are like a flock of sheep, by now I'm thinking he's looking at her first thing in the morning. Your hair is like a flock of goats and your teeth are like a flock of sheep. And it just gets worse. Your navel's like a round goblet and your belly's like a heap of weed and your nose is like a tower. It's like you don't want to see this woman coming at you on the street. You just don't. But see, we don't understand the compliments. They come not only from ancient times, 3,000 years ago, but they come from the Eastern Hemisphere, not the Western Hemisphere. So that's why we don't understand. But despite these obstacles, there's still pretty broad agreement on the structure of the book. It's got three sections. It describes the bride and the bridegroom in their engagement, in their wedding, and in their marriage. And the three sections are separated by those two dreams I mentioned. She has these haunting dreams, and she fears that her beloved has left her. And, and so when you take this whole little book, it's a beautiful portrait of marriage, leaving our family of origin and cleaving to our beloved and then weaving a new relationship together as husband and wife. It is a beautiful biblical portrait of marriage. It's amazing. But... It's way more than that. It's written by King Solomon. First Kings tells us that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So literally during his lifetime, King Solomon collected 3,000 wise sayings and he shared them with his subjects as he reigned. But the book of Proverbs collects only 500 and some odd Proverbs. So undoubtedly what the book of Proverbs is, is the best of the best of the 3,000 sayings that he collected. And then the Bible says his songs were 1,005. He wrote 1,005 songs. We only have one that remains, and it's this one, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. It is song of songs is Hebrew. It's a superlative. It means song of songs, the greatest of all. It's like saying uh, king of kings and lord of lords and holy of holies and God above gods. It's a superlative. And so this is literally the greatest of all Solomon's songs. The pastor mentioned it a moment ago. Everybody knows about Solomon's failures later in his life. Everybody knows that. 
when Solomon married many wives in order to establish peaceful, profitable, political relationships with other kingdoms all around. But when Solomon did that, he became entangled with the gods of all those pagan women and he violated the law of the Lord and it turned his heart away from the God of his father David. Here's what the Bible says in 1 Kings 11. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And here's the sad conclusion. And his wives turned away his heart. But Song of Solomon brothers and sisters. It predates all of that backsliding. This is the story written in his younger years of his first and true love. You see, the early reign of King Solomon, it wasn't like the later reign of King Solomon. The early reign of King Solomon was literally the greatest time in the history of Israel to be an Israelite. First Kings paints this spectacular, magnificent picture. First Kings 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much. And he gave Solomon largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. It was the greatest time in all of history to be an Israelite. Chapter 10 tells us all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, his palace, they were of gold. None were of silver. Silver was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. Nobody used silver for royal vessels or for platters or goblets in the days of Solomon. Silver was nothing accounted of. They had so much gold. So the Song of Solomon is meant to be understood on two levels. It's a story of human love and intimacy, but it points to our ultimate purpose. You were created to have a love relationship with Almighty God. You were created to walk in intimacy with your Creator. You were created to follow His wisdom. You were created to be united with Him. And, and if you follow God's Word, you become a wise ruler of your own life and your own world, just like Solomon did. See, you weren't created to be a drug addict. You weren't created to be an alcoholic. You weren't created to have your brain muddled with all kinds of chemicals that you've injected into your body. You weren't created to be an addict. You weren't created to be perverted. You weren't created to be immoral. You weren't created to be wicked and evil. You were created to be a container for the Holy Spirit of God. God has a plan for your life, and that plan is for you to serve him and you to be in love with him and him to be intimate with you and you to walk with him and talk with him. That's God's plan for you. I don't care how much that image, that relationship has been marred by sin in your life or in your family. You may come from a home where addiction rules the house. You may come from a place where all kinds of perversion surrounds you. You may work in an environment where people curse the name of the Lord every minute every hour, every day. But here's what I know. God didn't create you to take that all in and let that affect you. God created you to be filled with his spirit, filled with his light, filled with his word, filled with his power. So instead of that all getting in you, what you've got inside of you, it gets out. It gets all over them. It gets moves out through you. See, you were created to have this beautiful relationship with God. And that's why the Song of Solomon ends with the bride and the bridegroom united in love and intimacy. And they're in a garden filled with trees. It's just like the Garden of Eden. You're meant to think back to the Garden of Eden. God wants to have a relationship with you that ends in a heavenly garden, that ends in a place where there's no more sorrow and no more death and no more tears. And, and when I studied this little book, oh, it's been a couple years ago. It was during the pandemic, though, so probably 2020. I fell in love with this little verse. It's chapter 8 and verse 13. She says to him, Thou that dwellest in the gardens, the companions hearken to thy voice. Cause me to hear it. Whew. She says, Solomon, you're the king. All of your servants and your companions hear your voice but I want to hear your voice. That's the way we should think about Jesus. I'm so glad you have the privilege of being part of a church where pastor hears God's voice. But can I tell you, it's not enough for pastor 
to hear God's voice. Because you're not around, pastor, 24-7, 365 days a year. It's not only important for pastor to hear God's voice, it's important for you to hear God's voice. For your family, for your home, for your marriage, for your decisions. So I say, Jesus... Your companions hear your voice. Pastor hears your voice. Sister Bounds hears your voice. But Jesus, cause me to hear your voice. I need your voice tomorrow. I need your voice Tuesday and Wednesday. I need your voice as I walk through the rest of this week. Your companions hear your voice. Your servants hear your voice. Your preachers hear your voice. But Jesus, cause me to hear your voice. I wish you'd lift up your hands and your voice and let your hunger out of your words, out of your mouth and say, oh God, I want to hear your voice this week. I want to hear your voice in this service tonight. God, your companions hear your voice, but that's not enough. I want to hear your voice, Jesus. I release some tongue talkers in this place right now to just pray in the spirit for a moment. Lift up your voice and just pray in the spirit. <laughs> oh yes, Jesus, I need your voice in my home. I need your voice in my marriage. I need your voice in my family. I need your voice in my decisions. I need your voice in my finances. I need your voice in my parenting. I need your voice, Jesus. Cause me to hear your voice. I know this is an odd way to start a revival. But tonight I want to take the threads of this little tapestry and I want to weave them together. And I want to look through the lens of Scripture and I want to just show you this powerful, beautiful relationship between Christ and His church. And by the time we get all the pieces together, I think you'll know why God put this odd, strange, weird little book in your Bible. There are thousands of variants of the folktale Cinderella that are known and loved throughout the world. In the folktale Cinderella, the protagonist is always this young girl. Um, she lives in forsaken circumstances. She's a pauper. And her circumstances are suddenly changed to remarkable fortune. And it's always because she ascends to the throne through marriage. So across the languages and the cultures of the world, the, the story changes, the title changes, the main character's name changes. Uh, but in English, the word Cinderella has come to mean somebody who was ignored, somebody who was put down, somebody who was uh, misused and unrecognized, and then suddenly their fortune is changed after a long period of obscurity and neglect. That's Cinderella. And Cinderella's been around for a long time. Can I just tell you, Disney did not invent Cinderella. It's way older than that. In secular literature, the earliest variant of the Cinderella story was recounted by a Greek philosopher named Strabo. And Strabo lived during the lifetime of Jesus. And he told a fictional story of a Greek slave girl. Her name wasn't Cinderella. Her name was Rhodopis. And Rhodopis was a poor slave girl, but eventually she married the king of Egypt and it changed her life. But nearly a thousand years before the Greek philosopher Strabo told his fictional story about a slave girl named Rhodopis, there was a real life Cinderella, a real person, and she caught the attention of the king of Israel. And that king, of course, is Solomon. He's the son of David. He is the third king of Israel. And he is the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. Solomon presided over the golden age of Israel. The entire nation lived in peace and prosperity. He built the glorious temple. He expanded the royal palace. People from distant lands traveled thousands of miles just to see the buildings that Solomon built and to see Solomon servants and to see Solomon's palace and to hear Solomon's wisdom. He was a builder extraordinaire. He was a brilliant architect. He was an engineering genius. He says in Ecclesiastes, I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and orchards and planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made pools of water, irrigation channels to water therewith the wood that brings forth trees. He was an engineering genius. And one of those magnificent estates that Solomon built was about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. 
It was a vast vineyard in the fertile Jezreel Valley in northern Israel. It's near a tiny village called Shunem. It's about 50 miles from Solomon's palace. And, and here, Solomon's subjects, they do the arduous, back-breaking work of tending the crops and pruning the vines and picking grapes and they chase away thieves and they chase away predators and they work under that hot burning desert sun day after day after day after day. And then when they get all done that, they just have to give all the profit and all the proceeds to the royal treasury because after all, the king owns the whole country. He owns their vineyard. He owns every piece of equipment they use. He owns the ground they're standing on. Song of Solomon 8 and 11. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. It's talking about that place. He let out the vineyard to keepers and everyone for the fruit thereof was to bring a thousand pieces of silver. They worked all year long and at the end of the year, the proceeds go to the king's treasury because the king owns everything. Now, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is written later in his life, Solomon tells us he often undertook expeditions. He would travel throughout the nation of Israel because he was curious. He wanted to know what life was like in various levels of society. Sometimes he'd go to check on his vast land holdings. And Solomon often disguised himself so people wouldn't recognize that the king was checking up on them. And one day when he was traveling north to the village of uh, Shunem, to the, the vineyard at Baal Haman, to check on his estates. He's just traveling. He's incognito. Nobody knows that the king's checking on them. And one day his eyes just happened to fall upon a pauper peasant girl who just happened to be on her knees picking grapes in his vineyard. And in the heart of King Solomon, it was love at first sight. But now King Solomon has a major dilemma because he and his true love, they live in totally different orbits. She lives in a world that's so different than his. He lives in a palace and sleeps on satin sheets and has servants everywhere. She sleeps in a hut and she dresses in rags and she works back-breaking labor every day. So a courtship between those two is inconceivable. Marriage absolutely unimaginable. Solomon has all the power in Israel. He owns every grain of sand in Israel. But in matters of the heart, he is absolutely powerless. Because brothers and sisters, you can't buy love. And even if you could buy it, who would want it if you had to buy it? And that's what's written in this song in chapter 8 and verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, Neither can the floods drown it. Watch this. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. It would be rejected because you can't buy love. You can't. So King Solomon has this unimaginable dilemma. The king of the whole country is in love with a pauper peasant girl, and he doesn't know what to do about it. 175 years ago, there was a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and, and Kierkegaard wrote a book called Philosophical Fragments. Now, you don't need to know anything about Kierkegaard, but here's what you should know about him. He loved this odd, weird, strange little book in your Bible. Kierkegaard loved Song of Solomon. And so in his book, Philosophical Fragments, he wrote a short story that beautifully sums up Song of Solomon. And I want to read a few paragraphs to you. It's simply called The King and the Maiden, and it's, ama it's amazing. Here's his story. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden, but she had no royal pedigree, no education, no standing in the king's court. She dressed in rags, and she slept in a hovel. She lived the pitiful life of a peasant. But for reasons no one could quite figure out, the king fell in love with this girl in the way that kings sometimes do. Why he should love her was beyond explaining. But love her he did, and he could not stop loving her. But there arose in the heart of this mighty king an anxious thought. How in the world... Can I reveal my love to this girl? How can I bridge the great chasm that exists between the two of us? 
He called in his advisors. And his advisors, of course, told him, Oh, mighty king, all you need to do is command her to become your queen, and it'll be done. Because, mighty king, you're a man of immense power, and every statesman fears your wrath, and every foreign government, they tremble before you. Every one of your subjects, they grovel in the dirt at your feet. So just command it, mighty king. This girl will have no power to resist. She will have to become your queen. But you see, power, even unlimited power, cannot command love. Yes, the king could force her body to be present in the palace, but he could not force love to be present in her heart. He might be able to gain her obedience this way, but coerced submission was not what he wanted. He longed for intimacy of heart and oneness of spirit and true love. But you see, all the power in the universe cannot unlock the human heart. It has to be opened from inside. And so the king met with his advisors one more time. And this time they told him, Oh king, just bridge the gap between you by elevating her to your position. Shower her with gifts and dress her in royal robes. Summon an audience of dignitaries. And when they all get here, you can have her crown the queen. But the mighty king thought about it. And the more he thought about it, the more he realized. If I bring her to my palace and if, I, if she sees all the wealth and the pomp and the power of my greatness, she'll just be overwhelmed. How then will I ever know if she really loves me for who I am and not just for all the blessings that I give her. And how will she know that I would have loved her just as much if she'd never dressed in a royal robe? I would have loved her just as much if she'd never lived in a palace. How will she know? Every alternative that the mighty king's advisors suggested just came up empty. And finally, the mighty king realized that there was only one way to win the maiden's love without destroying her freedom to choose. He had to become like her, without power or riches or the title of king. Only then would she be able to see him for who he really was and not just what he possessed. So one day, the mighty king arose from his throne, took off his crown, relinquished his scepter, and laid aside his royal robes. He dressed himself in rags, left the palace, and traveled all the way to where she lived, all so he could win her heart. Yes, the king took on the identity of a poor pauper, and it was all for love. Wow. I think Kierkegaard got it right, because that's exactly the story of that odd, strange, weird little book in your Bible called Song of Solomon. So it was that Solomon returned to that little tiny vineyard, that, that big property he owned near the tiny village of Shunem. But nobody would have recognized Solomon this time. He didn't look like King Solomon at all. He disguised himself in the garments of a humble shepherd, and he went back to that huge vineyard near the tiny village of Shunem. He did it just to see if a real relationship between him and that peasant girl could ever be possible. But their first meeting is actually quite pathetic because she spent a lifetime apologizing for who she is. She spent a lifetime apologizing for her poverty and her appearance. She spent a lifetime apologizing and feeling shame for everything that's wrong in her life. And she just can't help herself. She can't comprehend that anybody would ever love her. That she would ever be worthy of anybody's love, even if he is just a humble shepherd. She is totally embarrassed by her grubby face and her grimy hands and her tangled hair and her threadbare clothes. She's totally humiliated by her tattered appearance. None of it's her fault. It's where she came from. None of it's her fault. It's her background. None of it's her fault. It's the way she was raised. None of it is her fault. It's just how life has turned out for her. She says in chapter 1, verse 6, 
Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun has looked upon me. I'm sunburned. My face is blistered. I'm ugly because the sun has burned my skin. And then she says, my mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyard. My stepbrothers and stepsisters have forced me to work hard, arduous labor in the vineyard. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. I am so embarrassed by my appearance. I can't believe that anybody would love me. I'm scratched and sticky from picking grapes and I'm burned from the sun and my garments are torn and tattered. But that handsome shepherd who walks into the vineyard on that day, that's all she knows about him. She doesn't know who he really is. She just thinks he's a shepherd. But he sees what nobody else sees. He looks beyond her tattered appearance because in his mind he sees a beautiful bride. She puts herself down and he reaches down and picks her right back up. She has nothing but words of despair and shame and humiliation, but he responds with words of love and restoration. He responds with all of the promises, all of his desire toward her. She sees herself as Cinderella, but when he looks at her, he sees the queen of his kingdom. He sees a beautiful bride. Oh my goodness. That's what she says. That's what she sees. Here's what he says. Oh no, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Can I tell you when Jesus looks at this church on this corner in this city, you know what he sees? He doesn't see your past. He sees your future. He doesn't see all of the devastation and destruction and shame and humiliation. He sees all the power of his promises. He doesn't look at you as some battered, beat up old sinner. He sees you as a redeemed child of God. You are part of his bride. When he looks at this church, he just says, I find no fault in her. Can you imagine? Because you look in the mirror every morning and you see nothing but your faults. You see nothing but your failures. You see nothing but, I'm aging, I'm getting old, I've got this problem, I've got that problem. I wish I could change this about me. I wish I could change this about my life. But when Jesus looks at his church, he doesn't see all the negative stuff that you see. He doesn't see all of your past. Your past is under the blood. Your past is as far removed from you as darkness is from dawn. You don't understand. When he looks at you, he says, oh no, church, You are all fair. There's no spot in you. That's why when he comes back, he's going to present to himself a glorious church. It's going to be without wrinkle. It's going to be without blemish. It's going to be spotless. He already sees your future. He already sees you on rapture day. He already says, my church is a spotless church. Oh, my goodness. Now, we don't know how long their courtship lasted, um, but in the book of Song of Solomon, there's two spring seasons that are referred to. So we think their courtship lasted maybe a little bit over a year. And during that year, it seems that Solomon must have visited Baal Haman frequently, repeatedly over several months, disguised as a shepherd. And his plan worked because now that's the story of this little book. It's why it reads so strange. Ladies, don't you get offended at me. It's why it reads so strange. It's a lady in love, and she's writing down some of what she feels, and Solomon's writing some of it down, and it just gets kind of confusing a little bit. I talk to Beverly sometimes, and I feel the same way that I feel when I read Song of Solomon. She... She's beautiful. She just goes from one subject to another. She can walk out of a church service like this and she can remember 15,000 things about 300 different people and I didn't even see any of it. But her, her heart is a deep well and when she talks, she's caring for people and she's remembering needs of people and she's thinking we should minister to this one and whatever. And, and, and I, I read a book once that said, men are like waffles. They process life in boxes, and they can only stay in one box at one time. That's it. But a woman is like a plate of spaghetti. Her thoughts and her emotions, they just kind of go around. You never know when one stops and another starts, and it just kind of... And she just does that seamlessly. She's so beautiful, and 
Beverly does that, and I'm just frantically jumping from box to box to box trying to keep up, you know. And that's why Song of Solomon reads like it does. It's this beautiful bride. She doesn't know she's beautiful. Solomon's in love with her. She can't imagine that he could be in love with her. But furthermore, she doesn't even know who he really is. She just thinks he's a handsome, humble shepherd. His little plan worked because now she's fallen in love with him. And there's funny things in the Bible. There's a funny thing right here in chapter 1, verse 7. She says to him one day, she says, um, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flocks to rest at noon. Why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? She says to him one day, she said, um, You know, I, I know you're kind of interested in me. I don't understand why. I don't understand why a handsome, humble shepherd would be interested in a pauper, peasant girl like me. But she said, I do have a question. Where are your sheep? Your companions all have sheep. All the other shepherds have sheep. You never seem to have any sheep. Where are your sheep? She never could figure that out. <laughs> now, eventually, Solomon's royal responsibilities call him back to Jerusalem. And he leaves. But before he leaves, he promises that little pauper peasant girl, we call her only the Shulamite, we don't even know her name. He promises her, he says, I have to go away, but I will come back. And when I come back, I'm going to make you my bride. That's the promise. And he leaves. And he was gone a long time. Sometimes she dreams of him. Always she longs for him. He's constantly in her thoughts, and her thoughts jump ahead to the wedding that he promised, and her thoughts jump back to the first moment they met, and that's why the book gets confusing. You're, you're trying to read her thoughts, and she's remembering, and she's thinking into the future, and, she, and then she has those terrible dreams, and she's afraid that he's left her, and it was all just a dream, and, 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 and that's the book. And nothing happened for months. He's gone. He left her a promise. He said he loved her. He said he wanted her to be his bride, and he goes away. And nothing happens for week after week, month after month. Other than her love for him, nothing changed in her everyday life. She still had to get up every day and go to work. She still had to get up every day and go out into the hot baking sun and pick those grapes and, and ward off predators and chase away thieves. And she still got sunburned, and it was just as hard in her everyday life after he fell in love with her as before. Nothing changed in her everyday life. In fact, if anything, her everyday life probably got a little bit worse because now she has to endure the harsh mockery of her friends and her family because they don't believe that a humble shepherd could ever fall in love with somebody like her. And so they mock her. And it's in the book, chapter 6 and verse 1. Whither is thy beloved gone, O thou fairest among women, whither is thy beloved turned aside? Tell us that we may seek him with thee. They're mocking her. They're, they're tormenting her. A handsome, humble shepherd could never love a scarred up, beaten, battered, tattered, pauper girl like you. They're, they're tor tormenting her. And sometimes she looks back at them and she answers with a calm assurance, but other times she battles nagging doubts. And sometimes she speaks with stubborn confidence, but other times her eyes fill with tears. Sometimes on some days she has courage, but other times the fear and the doubt catches up with her and she wonders if it was all just a dream. But every time they ask her, and every time she answers, she declares her love for her beloved, and she declares her faith in his promise. Look at this, chapter 5. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so chargest? And on this day, she has had enough. And she turns back to them with a stubborn, calm confidence, and she says, let me tell you, my beloved 
is white and ruddy. He is the chiefest among 10,000. They're tormenting her. Your beloved isn't even real. Your beloved, that's a false promise. That's fake news. He's not really coming back for you. That's just in your imagination. That's just something you dreamed up. But she turns back to them on this day. She said, you don't understand. I fell in love with my beloved and he is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. I talked with him enough. I walked with him enough. I've communed with him enough. I believe his promise. I believe when he said it, he's going to do it. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And then one day, just an ordinary spring day, there was a great cloud of dust on the road and all the common people ran to see what was going on. And soon, as they ran out to that dirt road that led up to that tiny village and that vast vineyard, soon they could see this majestic procession. And it's making its way up that dirt road toward the vineyard. And if you'd have been there on that day, you would have heard the, the, the crowd, the murmurs. You would have heard them become excited shouts. And soon you could hear it in the crowd. It's King Solomon. King Solomon is coming to our vineyard. The king of the whole country is arriving on his chariot. And sure enough, it was King Solomon. He's arriving on a royal chariot that's carried by poles on the shoulders of his servants. And he's guarded by 60 of his most valiant men. And with all the incense that they burned in honor to the king, it literally looks like the king of the whole country is arriving to their little vineyard on a cloud. There's incense everywhere. Song of Solomon chapter 3. Who is this? This is the question of the crowd on that day. Who is this that comes out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfume with myrrh and frankincense with all the powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, his chariot, it's Solomon's. Sixty valiant men are all around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords. They're all experts in war. Every man has his sword strapped on his thigh because of fear in the night. They're not letting anything happen to their king. King Solomon may made himself this chariot of the wood of Lebanon. Sure enough, it's the king of the whole country. It's the king who owns their vineyard. It's the king who owns every bed they sleep on and every hut they live in. It's the king who owns every grain of sand they've ever stood on. It's the king who owns every tree and river, lake and stream. It's the king who owns it all. And here he is coming to their little vineyard, coming up this dirt road. It looks like he's arriving on a cloud. The incense is everywhere, and he comes straight for their vineyard. And on that day, if you'd have been there, no doubt her abusive stepbrothers and stepsisters said, well, the king of the whole country certainly wouldn't want anything with you, so you stay here and you keep your nose in your work, and we'll go check it out. And then, to everybody's amazement on that day, the chariot of Solomon comes to a stop, and the king of the whole country gets out of his royal chariot, at the border of their vineyard. You know what happened on that day. Every face is immediately in the dirt. Every nose is immediately pressed to the ground. This is the king. He's got authority. One glance and you can be dead. One point and and it can be over for you. He has all authority and all power. He owns it all. He owns everything. And so everybody's bowing. But they're looking. And to their amazement, the king of the whole country gets out of his chariot and walks into their vineyard as though he's been there before. And he walks right over to a certain row where there's certain vines. And he walks right over to one nondescript little pauper peasant girl with a grubby face and grimy hands and tangled hair and tattered clothes. He walks right over to her. Everybody's amazed on that day. And she looks up. And you know she must have been terrified that first second. And then suddenly as she looks at the face of the king of the whole country, she realizes something. Wait a minute. That face is familiar to me. That's my humble, handsome shepherd boy who kept good his promise and he's come back to make me his bride. But but wait a minute. My handsome, humble shepherd who came the first time, he's the king that owns the whole country now that
that he's come the second time. I can hardly fathom it, but the shepherd who made me a promise that he was going away, but he'd come back, he was all the time the king of the whole country. He was all the time the king that owned it all. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my goodness. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, 13. Music, you can come back and get ready. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. It's the springtime. And the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. He's come back for her. And he says to her, Arise, my love, my fair one. And come away. As we sit here in this church house tonight, our world is literally teetering on the brink of World War III. Russia's aggression against Ukraine, we hope it'll be over soon, but we have no idea. It could proceed past the borders of Ukraine into the rest of Eastern Europe. It could proceed toward Europe itself. We have no idea. The threat of nuclear weapons hangs over us tonight like it has not for a couple of decades. And here we sit. But I am not looking for the news. I am not looking for a webcast. I am listening for a voice. The next great thing on my agenda is not the Antichrist. It's Jesus Christ. He came the first time, and the world didn't recognize him. They ignored him and crucified him, but he made us a promise. <laughs> if it's all over tonight, we're not defeated. We are victorious. If it's all over tonight, we're not staying here. We're going there. Oh, I wish you'd lift up your hands and your voice. Higher than your hands. Lift up your voice in this room. Glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, 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 oh. I release some intercessors in this church to do what you do right now. We'll finish the message in a minute, but your prayer's not going to disturb us. You just do what you do. Don't you worry what it feels like or sounds like or looks like. I release some intercessors. The presence of the beloved, the presence of the bridegroom is in this room tonight. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, 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 oh. Weary saint, it's going to be over soon and it will be all worth it. Every day, every long mile, every hard trial, it's going to be worth it. Oh, my. Oh, my. Ha. Shore batela ha roto kosheba ha. Mando robo bola mandeleke raboroto sabaha. why we preach this is why we pray this is why we serve God this is why we witness we're getting a bride ready for the heavenly bridegroom we're trying to get everybody we possibly can into this bride they don't need to look like much because he can change them they don't need to have much going for them he can lift them up they may have rags and tatters and addiction and perversion in their life but this bridegroom that we know he can look at them and cleanse them with his blood and then he can say I find no fault in you there's no spot in you and in one instant
brothers and sisters. Her future changed forever. <laughs> Who? The king had come for her. And the king of the whole country gallantly escorted her to his royal chariot to the utter amazement of that crowd on that day. And they began the journey back to the royal city of Jerusalem where she would spend the rest of her life in the royal palace and become Solomon's queen. You gotta hear me. In one instant, the vineyard was left behind her. In one instant, the endless days of toil and suffering were history. In one instant, her persecutors and her tormentors could never touch her again. In one instant, her rags were exchanged for royal garments. In one instant, her address changed from a pauper's shack to a royal palace. And best of all, in one instant, she got to spend the rest of her life with her beloved, the king who became a pauper so that a pauper could become his queen. That's who we serve. Now the crowd's story has changed. Chapter 8. Who's this that comes up from the wilderness? And she's leaning upon her beloved. They can't even comprehend what they're seeing. That this ordinary pauper peasant girl is now going to be the queen of the whole kingdom. I'm almost done. When I grew up in Fredericton, New Brunswick, little humble uh, brick building, it wouldn't be a third the size of this building, this sanctuary. Little tiny church, homemade plywood pews, old paneling on the walls. And there was an old elder named Albert Stickles, and Brother Stickles used to get up and quote poetry. And I remember as a kid, he'd write it and then he'd quote it. I remember as a kid, he was a big man, he kind of intimidating to a little guy. But I remember just sitting spellbound when he would quote poetry, and I remember this one. I never forgot it. It was called, There They Go. And the first two or three stanzas of that poem that Brother Stickles quoted, they were the world talking about the people of God. There they go, those crazy people, those Pentecostals, there they go. They're going to that church again. They're going to Bible study again. They're going to another service. They're going to another revival meeting. There they go. There they go. And it went on for two or three verses like that. And then the last verse, the scene changed. And it was rapture day. And the world was looking with their mouth agape because the church was no longer on this earth. And in the last stanza of Brother Stickle's poem, it was, there they go. There they go. There they go. Brothers and sisters, Zanesville, this thing is just about over. The restlessness you feel in your spirit is not because your life is so bad. It's because your life is about to get so good. The restlessness you feel in your spirit is not because you can't cope. It's because you've got in you God's eternal hope. That's why your spirit is getting restless. You're not getting restless because you're scared about Ukraine and Russia. You're getting restless because that just seems to be bearing down on the signs of the times. And there's something in every child of God right now. If you'll let it loose, it's telling you this is the last of the last days and this is the end of the end times. If you're ever going to be anything for God, if you're ever going to do anything for God, now is the time you need to get serious about it because very soon the king of the whole universe is going to show up riding on a cloud. And on that day, this world is going to be startled. They don't know who you are. Would you take somebody by the hand standing beside you? If they're okay with that, your family member, your spouse, lift those hands, everybody together. Lift those hands, everybody together. And now much more important than lifting those hands, lift up your voice. This first night of this wonderful revival in this powerful, awesome church. 
I came here to tell you Jesus is coming. So what we're going to do this week, it takes on eternal importance. Jesus is coming. So your ministry, your involvement in this local church is critical in your life. But I came to tell you Jesus is coming. So there's people you love. We got to make every effort to get them in the bride. There's people you know. There's family members that you know. You got to make every effort to get them in the bride because the king of the whole universe is about ready to come back and say, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, pray, church. Oh, pray, church. Huh? Oh, 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 oh. If you've never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost, tonight is your night to receive God's Spirit into yourself. Tonight is your night to speak in other tongues as His Spirit gives you the ability to do so. And here's why. He wants you in His bride. He wants you in His bride. He wants you in His bride. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, we stand ready to help you obey the gospel. Here's why. Because He wants you in His bride. He wants you in His bride. But for many more of us, we're already in his bride. We already know the Lord. But we forget. We get busy in the vineyard picking grapes and being busy and toiling under that hot sun day after day and enduring sometimes the insults and the torment of other people who don't understand why you're so wacko about your religion. They just think you're religious. You're not religious. You're in love. <laughs> this isn't a religion to us. This is that the king of all the ages robed himself in rags and came to this earth. And before he went away, he said, if I go away, I will prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to receive you unto myself. That is the next appointment on the calendar. Eternity is too long to be wrong. You can't afford to miss eternity with the heavenly bridegroom. So church, it's our first night of revival. What an honor it is to be here with you and preach to you. I'd like to pack this altar right now. Everybody that will help me. I don't know all your Sunday night customs, but I do know your pastor, so I know this is okay. I'd like everybody that would to move out of your seat and come. We've got all kinds of room at this wonderful altar. And I want this church on this first night of revival, I want us to pray together because there's somebody God wants to fill with the Holy Ghost this week during revival. There's somebody, Jesus already has his hook in them. They need to be baptized in Jesus' name during this revival. There's some backslider needs to come back to God and pray through during this revival. I'll tell you why. Because he's getting a bride ready and he wants everybody in his bride. You say, but they're messed up. Doesn't matter. He looks beyond that and he sees his bride. You say, but they're addicted tonight. Doesn't matter. He can fix that. He can heal that. He can deliver that and make them ready to be in his bride. One more time, would you reach over, take somebody by the hand and lift every hand in this room that will like a choir of uplifted hands. And now I want this great church that loves God and loves missions and loves the cause of God and loves soul winning. I want this great church to lift up your voice and pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit. If you're not in his bride, it's time to get in his bride. And if you are in his bride, it's time to get everybody that we possibly can to join us because there's coming a celebration day. Weary saint, hang on a little longer. Jesus is coming. If you're sick in body and your mind is confused, hang in there. Jesus is coming. Thanks again for listening to the Anchor Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Zanesville area, we invite you to join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at theanchor.church. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.